Morning, everyone. What a great way to spend Valentine's Day. Our first case this morning is uh, Midfirst Bank versus uh, Brown et al. And we will hear from the appellant. the court. My name is Ben Leighton and my colleague Ryan Hoffman and I represent Appellant Midfirst Bank. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case presents a choice. A choice between empowering the judiciary of this state to guard against borrower misconduct or the choice to effectively eliminate the doctrine via imposing a bright line rule that is incompatible with the flexible and equitable nature of the doctrine. Appellees will argue that this court is not empowered to weigh the equities due to two bright line rules, bright line rules that have not been articulated by this court and that are not sound legal policy. Those bright line rules are that the recording of the encumbrance at issue bar the application of the doctrine and that the occurrence of the sheriff's sale bars the application of the doctrine. Neither of these bright line rules has been articulated by this court and they're incompatible with the flexible and equitable nature of the doctrine. Accordingly, this, this court is empowered to weigh the equities, equities which overwhelmingly favor Midfirst Bank. Before I turn to our legal argument, I'd like to begin with a brief timeline of the salient facts. In 2000, Appley Brown purchased the subject property. In 2004, Appley Brown obtained a loan from First Horizon Bank secured by a deed of trust against the property. In 2010, a South Carolina judgment was entered against Appley Brown based on her forgery of a deed in connection with a real estate transaction. That judgment set in motion the events that led us all to this court today. In 2014, that South Carolina judgment was domesticated in Mecklenburg County. In 2016, Appley refinanced her First Horizon loan with Midfirst Bank's predecessor. Midfirst predecessor agreed to loan Appley Brown $282,000 in exchange for a first position lien on the property. As part of this refinance, Appley Brown executed an owner's affidavit indicating that the property was not subject to any encumbrances, despite her admitted knowledge of the judgment and its domestication. There is no evidence that Midfirst predecessor had any actual knowledge of the judgment at the time of the refinance. In 2019, the property was sold via a sheriff's sale, executing on that South Carolina. Excuse me, I do want to, I'd like to ask a clarifying question. Um, there, there's no notice that there was, um, uh, that there was this uh, judgment lien, but wasn't there the opportunity for um, uh, Nations, let's see, Nation Star to discover that through a, uh, a duly uh, performed title search? Yes, Your Honor, there was an opportunity. And, and is there any explanation of what happened? Why that wasn't, why it wasn't discovered at that time? No, Your Honor, the record is sparse Appley's did not conduct any discovery, so the record is sparse with respect to that issue. And so under typical circumstances, where there is simply neglect, without any type of excuse or other extenuating circumstances, this doctrine would not apply. However, here, this is different because there was a, an affirmative misrepresentation by the borrower that no such encumbrances existed. All right, and let me follow up one more. Uh, on such a loan, there would have needed to have been some kind of underwriting uh, was there, uh, 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 is there any evidence that uh, the underwriters, when they did the, uh, did the credit report, that uh, this didn't come up on the credit report and why that is not in the record? That's correct, Your Honor. That is not in the record. Well, it's not in the record, but is there any explanation for why the underwriters didn't find it? No, Your Honor. Because an ordinary uh, credit report would show such an encumbrance usually. Is that not true? Yes, Your Honor. Under typical circumstances, the way this process traditionally works, this would have been caught, and this would not be an issue. This would not be before the court. Here, the extenuating circumstances are the misrepresentation that no such encumbrances existed, and therefore, there is an excuse for mid-first neglect. And so, it's, I want to make sure I understand your position. So, it's your position 
that since she signed the lien waiver, I think that must be what you're talking about, that uh, that would excuse the underwriting of this and would also excuse the failure of the title search. Is that, is that your position? Yes, Your Honor. The owner's affidavit that was submitted by Appley Brown in connection with the refinance swore and represented that there were no encumbrances associated with the property. And there, therefore, there is an excuse in this right. Is there anything in the record that indicates that Ms. Brown understood that this judgment would be an encumbrance on the property? Uh, I know in common, generally speaking, people don't realize that judgments attached to their real property unless they're lawyers or it's been explained to them by the attorney at the closing? Yes, Your Honor. Appley Brown admits that she was aware of the judgment, she was aware of its domestication, and the discovery responses, which are part of the record in this case, do indicate that she understood the implications. Thank you. Yes. I just want to follow up on that, because you, you said um, you referred to that as an excuse for your party, and I just, for your client, I, I, I want to sort of understand how this works when we're analyzing one of these equitable subrogation cases. So, I, I mean, do you, are you disputing that your client failed to exercise due diligence, or are you sort of acknowledging that but saying there's, when you balance the equities, there's other things you have to think about? Well, where are you on that question? Your Honor, the record is sparse with respect to what exactly occurred, occurred in connection with the refinancing. However, yes, our position is that there is an excuse in this context such that the doctrine can apply based on the affirmative misrepresentation from the borrower and other right. equitable circumstances. So I'm, uh, I'm not asking, do you think the principles of equitable subrogation can apply. I'm asking, do you think if someone makes a false statement on, let's say, a loan application, and then the bank could have figured it out through some other due diligence, like a title search, like a credit check, and but never bothered to do that, that the obligation to use due diligence is excused under some legal principle by the misstatement or the false statement in, in the application? Your Honor, we're not arguing that the obligation is excused, but what we're saying is that in this context, it's appropriate for the court to be empowered to weigh the equity. Right. Well, that, that's what I just wanted to clarify. Yes, Your Honor. At some point, you know, and you say the court, I assume you mean a court or a jury. If we were to find that uh, there were uh, these competing interests, uh, doesn't it make sense to let a jury figure out uh, whether uh, equitable subrogation would occur under these circumstances. That may be the case, Your Honor. Here we contend that there are no facts that are in dispute, and therefore it would be an appropriate determination for the judge to make. But certainly under certain circumstances, it may be an appropriate determination for the jury as well. The appellees in this case contend that the, the sheriff's sale, based on the judgment entered in South Carolina, extinguished mid-first interest in the property, and that equitable subrogation cannot apply due to technicalities that have not been articulated by this court and are inconsistent with the fundamental purpose of the doctrine. As your honors know, equitable subrogation is intended to be a flexible, equitable doctrine. As articulated by this court in the Journal Publishing Company case, equitable subrogation is based in equity, and its purpose is the doing of complete, essential, and perfect justice between all parties without regard to form, and its object is the prevention of injustice. But let me ask you a question about that. So in the very beginning of the Court of Appeals analysis, they say the earliest case in North Carolina to discuss equitable subrogation is Peek in 1955. Is that a correct statement of the law? Your Honor, we believe that the journal publishing case also articulates some of the jurisprudence surrounding equitable subrogation. Would you describe that case as an equitable subrogation case, in your view? Yes, Your Honor. Although I think it's also true that there are concepts of more traditional subrogation that are also addressed in that case. And the language in peak about sort of doing perfect justice comes from that case, doesn't it? Yes, Ron, it does. And if you look at the language in that case, which essentially says equitable subrogation is a principle of equity and benevolence, the goal is perfect justice and preventing injustice, and then you were told what category does this fall into of these sort of arbitrary, I think in some ways arbitrary categories that you all have tried to tell us you've got to pick between majority minority restatement. It seems to me in reading the case that's a little bit murkier than that, but where, which of those would that be in 1914 when we first described it as it's just a doctrine of equity and benevolence to do perfect justice? Which is that in your view? 
It's, I think it is certainly not the minority approach. It's clear that the doctrine as articulated by this court is a flexible, equitable doctrine that is not to be constrained by this type of bright line rule. Therefore, there should be more flexibility. So whether it's the restatement approach or the majority approach, either approach affords the necessary flexibility to engage with the equities and weigh them and apply the doctrine as appropriate. Uh, if I might follow up on that, um, uh, it, and I'm certainly familiar with these cases, but how do you reconcile your position with uh, the fact that the General Assembly in North Carolina has, uh, uh, has um, uh, applied or has subjected us to the pure race st uh, statute? Um, how, how, how does that, because that's very set in stone there, how, how do you reconcile the flexibility with pure race? statute. Your Honor, North Carolina is certainly a race state. However, we also recognize equitable exceptions, and this is one of those equitable exceptions. We are not seeking to reverse or set aside the sheriff sale. We are simply seeking to invoke this equitable remedy in this context. If the legislature, the General Assembly didn't want us to have equitable subrogation, could they pass a statute that says we no longer have this equitable doctrine? I think this court is empowered to promote and adopt equitable subrogations, regardless of the language in the statutes. Now, with respect to Apley Anderson in this case. Let, let, let me ask one more kind of basic framing question. Uh, you've mentioned uh, the Journal Publishing Company case in 1914, peak where in peak the test was excusable ignorance, excusably ignorant. But also there's Wallace versus Benner, a 1931 case that first says consideration of the Connor Act under these, when you're thinking about equitable subrogation is not applicable. But it then goes on to say that the real test is uh, culpable negligence. Uh, would you agree that it seems that our case law would bring us to excusably ignorant or culpable negligence as the test? Yes, Your Honor, I would. Returning to the Peak case that we've been discussing. So I want to see if you just conceded something. What if you had a case where the bank was unquestionably culpably negligent? The loan applicant committed fraud, deceit, misrepresentations, all a whole host of things that are just inequity, way over the line of just totally inappropriate conduct. You think if the bank is culpably negligent, there's no balancing of any equities there, it's just you cannot have equitable subrogation in that circumstance? I think that culpable negligence would tie into the overall weighing of the equities, such that in analyzing the bank's conduct, if this court felt as though that negligence outweighed any conduct by the borrower, then I think it would be appropriate to say that the doctrine should not apply. However, I think the bank, or this court, this court could still consider neglect on the part of the bank in the context of affirmative misrepresentations and fraud and still apply the doctrine. So another way to put that would be both Wallace and Peek, you didn't have those facts. So the court is setting out some sort of standard to explain what you do when the bank sort of has some, there's some equity weighing against them, but there's nothing on the other side. And so you're trying to understand, well, how, except for the unfairness, the potential windfall and so on, and trying to figure out, well, how far can the bank go with its behavior? But none of those cases involve a situation where you have to balance some allegation of bad faith or fraud or something else on the other side from the applicant, loan applicant. Yes, I agree, Your Honor. Although I would note that in the P case, it appeared as though the bank in that case did not conduct any type of title search. And the encumbrance at issue in that case was of public record. But similar to this case, there was a submission by the borrower who worked in connection with another to submit a false application or a false affidavit to the bank that represented no encumbrances existed. And so in that P case, the court did not determine that the lender's inexcusable neglect based on the recording barred the application of the doctrine. Instead, the P court only found that the doctrine did not apply because there was insufficient allegation and proof that the bank's loan was made for purposes of discharging the prior lien. There is not a semblance of a suggestion that that would apply in this case. Here, there is no dispute that Midfirst's loan to Appalee was extended for the purpose of discharging the prior lien. 
And so the equitable subrogation claim does not fail for the reason that it failed in Peek. However, similar to Peek, despite the recording, excusable neglect does not bar the application of the doctrine where there is an affirmative misrepresentation by the borrower. Peek is consistent with the understanding that the application of equitable subrogation is not based on some binary decision, nor is there a bright line rule that constricts the doctrine in this way. North Carolina jurisprudence does not dictate that the inquiry ends because the encumbrance at issue was of public record. Accordingly, this court should reject the bright line rule in favor of an approach that affords courts more flexibility and the necessary discretion to guard against borrower misconduct. The second bright line rule that appellees advance in an effort to avoid a weighing of the equities is that equitable subrogation cannot apply because of the occurrence of the sheriff's sale. No North Carolina jurisprudence supports such a technicality. Appellant is, seeking to Appellant is not seeking to invalidate or reverse that sheriff's sale. Rather, it is seeking to invoke the equitable remedy of equitable subrogation to reestablish its interest in the property. Now, appellees cite to a Missouri appellate case, Thompson v. Chase Manhattan Mortgage Company, in support of the idea that the occurrence of the sheriff's sale bars the application of the doctrine. In that case, the Missouri Appellate Court upheld the trial court's refusal to apply the doctrine in the absence of any evidence of misconduct by the borrower as there was no equitable basis for the doctrine's application. The record in Thompson was devoid of any evidence that could operate as an excuse for the lender's neglect. I, can I ask you, I have a, a slightly different question about the facts here and the sheriff's sale, and um, not that the sheriff's sale uh, by itself bars application of the doctrine, but that in this particular case, I read the police version of the facts to say that um, when she received notice of that sale, she contacted your predecessor in interest and said, you know, can you help me out here? I need another loan. This, this judgment is being collected against me. Um, and, and so at that point, if we're, if we're in equity, um, and doesn't your client need to come to equity with clean hands? At that point, weren't they essentially on notice that there might be some interest that was sought to be collected against this property? And, they, and what, isn't that where they really needed to step up and protect their rights and they, they sat on their rights? Yes, Your Honor. So at that time, there was no disclosure to MidFirst Bank other than there is a sale, can you help me? There was no disclosure that the prior representation related to the encumbrances was false. That was the perfect opportunity, or a perfect opportunity, to disclose the prior misrepresentation and make MidFirst Bank aware of the fact that its encumbrance could be impacted by this upcoming sale. There is no evidence that that was the communication. And so under these circumstances, MidFirst was still left with a mistaken impression that its interests were not subject to extinguishment there is no obligation to provide junior lien holders notice of the sale, and this evidence in the form of deposition testimony from Ms. Brown does not establish that MidFirst was put on notice that its interest was subject to extinguishment. So you're saying that because she didn't specifically say that they might lose their interest, they didn't have any obligation to investigate further and figure out what, how to protect their interest? At the time that she communicated that there was a sale and she needed some type of help, there was sufficient facts were not provided in MidFirst Bank such that they were on notice that they needed to take any action to protect their interests. And, and just generally in terms of what remedies they might have in these circumstances, um, as I read the, the affidavit that she signed, that gives... Um, so I'm, I'm questioning sort of, do you need equitable subrogation to protect your interests, but doesn't the owner's affidavit give you a right to recover for false statements in that affidavit? Wouldn't the fact that the title search and the title insurance give you a right to recover because this, this judgment wasn't discovered at the time of the refinance? Your Honor, while the practical reality is that MidFirst Bank could pursue an action for fraud against Ms. Brown, in order to truly recoup its interest, there needs to be some type of, she would need to have some type of interest in the property or other funds such that that judgment would be, they would be in a position to pursue that judgment. Otherwise, it would just be a piece of paper that lists a certain amount of money. So you're saying the reality is many people in this sort of circumstance would otherwise be judgment proof, which is one of the reasons that banks 
take a security interest in the home when making a loan like this. That's exactly and right. Do I understand your argument to be you, your client thought they had first priority. So if there's a sale, you say, okay, I mean, but we're going to get our money before anybody else does. So, you know, there, it doesn't, there's no reason for us to rush out and participate. That is exactly right, Your Honor. And I would also contend that that is the reason that while the appellees commingled their funds to repurchase the property, while Appellee Brown continued to reside there, it was only placed in Appellee Anderson's name for a reason, and that is the specific reason. Uh, I'd like to follow up on one thing. The, the, phone, the ostensible phone call by Ms. Brown to, uh, to Mid-First. Uh, am I correct in hearing that Mid-First knew there was going to be a sale of some type but did not think that it uh, affected their lien on the property? Is, is that what you're arguing? Yes, Your Honor. Well, it would not, would not in the normal course of this sort of thing that they would show up at the courthouse steps and place a bid at least to the value of what their lien is to protect it, uh, lest it get sold for a lesser amount and then they not be paid off if this is a junior lien holder uh, foreclosing on, on the loan? No, Your Honor, mid-first interest would have been preserved based on its understanding that it was a first position lien holder. I see. Somewhat, I think this is a little more factually oriented, but is it your position that the entire $282,000 loan should be equitably subrogated or just the 219 that went to satisfy the paid off prior First Horizons loan? The latter. The latter. Uh, one more follow-up. Uh, I, I really need to understand this, and so uh, you can help me through it. So if MidFirst knew that, that there was going to be a sale for a subordinate mortgage, then to satisfy that subordinate mortgage, the bid, the, the subordinate mortgage holder would most likely show up and bid the 165000 or whatever it is. There would be no additional proceeds at that point, and then the property would be sold. Help me straighten, straighten that out in my mind. Your Honor, as a priority lien holder, mid-first interest would have already been protected. It's only if they were, in fact, aware of the fact that they were a junior lien holder that their interest would have been subject to extinguishment by that sale. And so it would go to the next owner uh, as a lien at that point, and so they would no longer have the... Uh, this is very much entangled, so I'm going to have to think about that. But uh, are you conceding that they knew that there was some kind of sale going on? Only that the record reflects Ms. Brown's testimony that she reached out to the bank around the time of the refinance. Returning to the equities, given that these two bright line rules do not apply, it is important to note the following considerations. Uh, sorry, bef before you, you move on, can you... Um can you explain why the COA's uh, interpretation of 1-339.68 is wrong? With respect to the language in the sheriff's right. sale, do you? Right. We are not contesting that, Your Honor. We agree that the sheriff's sale language is not controlling in this context. Didn't the COA base its decision on the particularly the word prior in the statute? Yes, Your Honor. And, and you, you disagree with that, I assume? We are only, we are only appealing the issue with respect to equitable okay. subrogation. Right. Going through the equities that are before the court here, I'd like to list them out briefly. One, the judgment at issue that led to the foreclosure sale stemmed from Ms. Brown's fraudulent conduct. If equitable subrogation is not applied here, she's essentially afforded an incredible windfall by virtue of her own misconduct. Two, Appley Brown made affirmative misrepresentation that no encumbrances existed with respect to the property in the affidavit she executed and submitted at the time of the refinance. Three, the purchase price of the property was grossly inadequate. Pelly Anderson bought the property at the execution sale, which was then valued at approximately half a million dollars for approximately $100,000. Four, Appley Brown continues to reside at the property she admits that she never stopped living there. Five, appellees commingled their funds to repurchase the property in Appellee Anderson's name alone. Six, appellees elected to repurchase the property when they could have instead paid off the judgment at issue for a lesser amount. 
Seven, Pelly Anderson was aware of the judgment at the time of the sheriff's sale. This is not a situation where an innocent third party purchased the property without notice and would be prejudiced by the requested relief. Eighth and finally, equitable subrogation puts the parties where they bargained to be at the time of the refinance. The bank loaned $282,000 to Appley, believing that it would be stepping into the shoes of a first position lien holder. It had every right to believe that that was the interest it was receiving because that is what Appley represented it would be receiving. Your, I don't want to eat into your rebuttal time, so let me ask you, everything you just described, I think if those were facts found by a fact finder, you'd have a very strong equitable subrogation case under the theory that's been articulated by this court for 100 years. But uh, your description of that, I think your friend, we're going to hear in a minute, is going to dispute that, um, that there was no collusion, that these, these parties were acting innocently, and that there was just a misunderstanding in the loan application, you know, in, in paperwork about what something means because the applicant's not a lawyer and doesn't understand the implications of, you know, having a judgment in another state. So um, don't those need to be resolved? Don't those, we need to know what the facts are? Was there collusion? Was there fraud as you described it? Um, and those are not things typically that are done at summary judgment. Your Honor, I think my friend would agree that this list of facts is not in dispute and therefore it would be appropriate to enter summary judgment in this context. What I'm saying is you could look at those facts and say, but there was no collusion, there was no bad faith, there was no fraud, there was just misunderstandings of what technical terms in, you know, in a loan application mean, there's um, family members trying to help out another family member, not lose their home, and so on. And yes, Your Honor. The, the determination that this was bad faith, it was collusion, it was an attempt to defraud a bank, and so on, you know, to get a free house, essentially. You would need that finding in order to resolve this question. Yes, and there is no dispute that Appley's commingled their funds and purchased the property in Appley Anderson's name alone. And I would also contend that the sworn statements in that affidavit need to be given weight. And regardless of whether or not there was an understanding, there was a sworn representation that no encumbrances existed with respect to the property. And therefore, because the two bright line rules do not apply, this court is empowered to weigh those equities and those equities weigh heavily in favor of Midfirst Bank. Therefore, this court is empowered to apply the doctrine of equitable subrogation. Such an application would accomplish the precise goals of the doctrine, the doing of complete, essential, and perfect justice. Your Honors, if you have no further questions, I respectfully request that you reverse the Court of Appeals decision and grant summary judgment in favor of appellate. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, the Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I'm Bonnie Keith Green, along with co-counsel Wesley Deaton, and we represent the defendants appellees Betty Brown and Michelle Anderson. Midfirst is requesting a dramatic change in North Carolina law. The extraordinary remedy Midfirst seeks would lead to a radical departure from this state's longstanding statutory law established by the Connor Act in 1885. It would also mark a radical departure from the excusable neglect standard established by this court in Peak versus Wachovia Bank and Trust, which has been followed consistently by the lower courts. In contrast, we are asking this court to confirm that North Carolina follows the minority approach to equitable segregation and to confirm longstanding title law codified in the Connor Act. I'm going to talk primarily about three things. First, the execution sale statute. Second, Midfirst's arguments as to fraud. And third, the minority approach to equitable segregation. First, the remedy Midfirst seeks would require invalidating the execution sale held pursuant to North Carolina General Statute 1-339.68b. Midfirst's reliance on the restatement in this case ignores the impact of the execution sale. The Court of Appeals correctly held that the execution sale statute provides that only liens that were effective prior to the judgment under execution remain on the property after the execution <coughs> sale. Fundamentally here, the underlying judgment doesn't matter. The reason for the underlying judgment, Brown's conduct in the Charleston case, is not relevant. 
On this point, as to the execution sale, Midfirst has not articulated what rule it would make. How would this court and trial courts draw a line when analyzing the application of equitable subrogation after an execution sale? Uh, if I might inter interrupt, um, can you point to the language in, uh, in the statute that um, you, if I want to understand, you argue that, um, that, that, that this statute prohibits the use of or the application of equitable remedies. Uh, can you point to specific language in the statute that does that? Um, no, Your Honor, I don't think there's anything in the statute that precludes specifically an equitable remedy here. It's our position that this court um, is required to follow the legislative intent that no liens remain and that the statute's un unambiguous to that and that there would lead to significant uncertainty in title law if um, equitable remedies are applied to overcome execution sales that all execution sales would uh, be called into question in Mecklenburg County and beyond throughout the state and that as a policy matter and with regard to the legislative intent um, that this court should apply the execution sales statute as written and affirm the Court of Appeals on that point. You would agree that the General Assembly has the power and frequently has abrogated common law doctrines that this court had created, right? Yes, Your Honor. So and wouldn't you sort of expect that if they wanted to do that, because when they do that, they say so expressly that there would be some indication that this equitable doctrine did not, you know, did not survive into the modern era. Yes, Your Honor. However, it, it may not have um, been considered by the General Assembly at this point because perhaps this wasn't obvious. Um, this particular case raises this unique question on these unique facts, and we can talk about the various approaches, the restatement, the majority, and the minority approach. However, this particular case is very unique in the facts that um, there was the sale and Ms. Anderson gathered her retirement savings, um, you know, understood, learned, did not understand in advance, but learned how the execution sales statute worked and then, you know, gathered the money, went and placed the upset bid. So as to the General Assembly, it's, it's not in the statute, but yes, I agree that um, they would have the power to, to provide that explicitly by statute. Um, again, as to the execution sale, as um, the justices have already asked, um, Midfirst has not articulated the rule that it, that it asked the court to adopt. And as you've indicated, any party may bid at an execution sale. Um, there are no constraints, and Midfirst could have bid at the execution sale. Um, as to the issue of... What's your response to their argument that if they believe they had first priority, there was no reason for them to even show up because ultimately they knew they were protected no matter what happened between your client and junior lien holders? Your Honor, we take the position that that is essentially negligent, that equity aids the vigilant and not the negligent, and that to be notified that the property is going into an execution sale and they concede that, um, that to just assume that you have the first priority and not to do anything further um, to protect your security interest is essentially negligent conduct. Um, I, we don't agree that the standard should be culpable negligence as it was in Wallace v. Benner. It's our position that the standard is excusable neglect established in peak as the later of those three cases. Um, however, here it's, it's almost that first was culpably neg negligent for so many reasons. First, it and its predecessors failed to locate the lien. Um, then learning about the execution sale, um, not seeking to enjoin it, which they could have done filing suit at that point, and resolving this issue of there's a junior lien holder or then going itself to bid on the property. So there's many steps along the process here where they failed to protect their security interests and were negligent. Um, Can you again, tell me the difference between excusably ignorant in peak and culpable negligence 
in Wallace? Um, Your Honor, I don't have a real definition of culpable negligence from other states, so I, I would hesitate to define it myself. However, I, it's a higher standard than excusable neglect. The way the courts, the Court of Appeals has consistently applied excusable neglect is when there is constructive notice of an existing lien, then a party cannot claim to be excusably negligent or excusably ignorant. And it's our position that the law is clear on that, um, that this court established that standard in peak and that it has been followed consistently. Um, we would disagree with our friend that the Court of Appeals has not applied that. Um, the only case which we have identified as being the outlier is American General Financial Services v. Barnes. Um, in that case, the Court of Appeals assumed excusable ignorance and then made its decision based on the fact that there was an innocent purchaser. Um, it's our position that that is incorrectly decided. But um, you know, if any of the if so, start with Wallace Peak, and then there's a long line of Court of Appeals case law. Did any of those cases involve a situation where there was some allegation of fraud or misrepresentation or bad faith collusion on the part of the loan applicant? Your Honor, what? What is the closest analogy to that is, is yes, there is bad conduct on the part of borrowers. And one case where that is very clear is Lindley Labs, um, First Union National Bank versus Lindley Labs. So the family there, the Cobbs, gave a, gave a deed of trust to First Union, encumbering a lot. They then signed a loan modification with this Lindley Labs party using that lot um, to secure a different deed of trust and then sold the lot to another purchaser recording that deed and giving a deed to First Union. They defaulted on their note to Lindley Labs and it began to foreclose and then First Union argued it should be subrogated to the, the deed of trust to First Union. And while those aren't exactly the facts of what Midfirst is arguing, that is conduct where the borrowers know they already have an encumbrance and they're seeking additional loans and not disclosing that. Um, also, the Countrywide Home Loan Service um, versus States case is an unpublished decision which is also has similar facts. Um, that is not published by the Court of Appeals. You don't disagree that Peek basically did not reach uh, equitable subrogation because, I mean, it certainly discussed it, but it says, however, the bank having failed to show that its loan monies were advanced with intent and for the purpose of extinguishing the prior encumbrance has failed to bring itself within the principles of the doctrine. Your Honor, I absolutely agree with that. There, there was really no discussion of what excusable neglect means and the peak holding was solely on the basis that you've described because the loan was, was made for a different purpose. Um, it wasn't clear that it was made to discharge the first you have we have a much more extensive discussion in Wallace where actually it sets out uh, the exceptions to equitable subrogation uh, three specific uh, instances uh, why should we not follow uh, what was uh, set out in Wallace your honor I agree that Wallace essentially leans to or mirrors or is very similar to the restatement approach. Um, one important fact or um, fact about Wallace v. Benner, like the restatement, is it assumes that there is an existing junior lien holder. So here there is no junior lien holder which is a foundational principle of the restatement. Um, the reasoning of Wallace v. Benner cannot apply here because the junior lien holder was paid off and there's a new owner, Michelle Anderson, who took pursuant to the valid execution sale. We also contend that Pete did establish excusable neglect, although admittedly it has not been articulated by this court what that is. Um, 
the court has the opportunity now to clarify that and it's our position that the restatement is inconsistent with the pure race statute the Connor Act which was established in 1885 and so it's our position that this court should confirm that it follows the minority approach and not the broader principles described in Wallace v. Benner. But in Wallace, didn't we expressly say that the Connor Act did not apply to questions of equitable segregation? Um, Your Honor, I, I don't recall that explicit part of Wallace v. Benner, but I'm happy to provide a well, let, let, let me read it to you and you see what you think. We do not think, gives the statute number, the Connor Act has any application to the questions here involved. Your Honor, my response to that is that the Connor Act doesn't explicitly apply to these questions of excusable neglect in the area of equitable subrogation, but the policy underlying it does. And my friend has argued against, strenuously argued against the bright line rule. But it's our position that a bright line rule is the best choice for North Carolina and is supported by the Connor Act. So the Connor Act doesn't explicitly apply, and I would agree with that in Wallace v. Benner. However, it is the longstanding policy of this court and then Justice Connor who authored the Connor Act stated in the Wood versus Tinsley case that North Carolina prefers bright line hard rules in the area of real title even though they result in hardship. Occasional hardship has occurred in this case um, mid versus arguing about the equities here but that um, the Connor Act should should apply in the sense that North Carolina has chosen this very bright line hard rule that does result in occasional hardship and that that was actually considered by the legislature. Um, Justice Connor stated in Woodby Tinsley that the legislature considered that that would cause occasional hardship. And, and um, I'd like to uh, return to the business or the the question of the notice that uh, we've, that's, that's being argued here about the sale. Um, it's my understanding, and, and your friend on the other side can correct me if, if I've misapprehended mis, uh, this, but uh, it's his, their position that just because there was, if there was a phone call uh, about this, that because MidFirst thought they had a first lien position, that there was not going to be any kind of change in a situation even if there was a sale, but my understanding from your argument is, is that yes, they were on notice and they should have done something about it because while even if they had a first position, at that point the uh, current lender, or excuse me, the current borrower would be out of the position and their situation would be as a first lien holder that they would be, if the loan wasn't paid, they would have to foreclose. The, the parties were gonna shift in this transaction. Uh, because the uh, uh, the person who had the note with the bank would would no longer be involved, and and that would would be the case, um, and so I'm struggling with the shifting of positions and the, the varying of the parties that would be involved after such a sale. Can you comment on that and what your position is? Yes, Your Honor, that is the problem with the restatement. Um, it's it's problematic for two reasons. One, the restatement approach uh, rebalances equitable, um, I'm sorry, rebalances liens just based on equitable principles and that leads to grave uncertainty in title um, generally, just as a general matter. And then this, the second thing that's problematic about the restatement goes to Justice Riggs' question, which we've argued in the briefs, which under the restatement, it's comment E, I think it's illustration 28, it's very clear that only the amount of the third position lien is subrogated to first position. Um, 
you know, when there's a need to reshift the priorities. And so in this case, um, I have a worksheet, but it's, it's a roughly $65,000 in excess funds that would not be equitably subrogated under the restatement principles. This also applies as to any varied entry, interest rate or maturity date. So trial courts would be put in the position if suppose Midfirst had gone in and, and sought to reshift the equities um, prior to the sale, trial courts would be put in the position of having to break down and bifurcate liens to put only a portion in first priority and this would cause chaos in title law in the state. And so the restatement is very problematic just as a general matter um, in opposition to the Connor Act and then the complexity of applying that type of doctrine with those principles of, and, and because the reason for that is that the entire foundation of the restatement approach, which is based on English courts of equity, is that there's no prejudice to a junior lien holder. And so it follows that the reprioritization can only be as to the amount of, um, the amount calculating that matches that first lien. Um, I'd like to talk if... Well, and, and if I might, just a simple follow-up. I don't know if your answer would be um, non-complex, but... Uh, and so it's your position that that phone call, given the complexities that would occur as a result of this, this sale, um, they, they should have been on notice to do something at that point to investigate their position. Is that your position? Yes, Your Honor. It's, again... Um, to be on notice that there's an execution sale and not to do any further inquiry. And just, it's a, it's a point to reiterate that there is no contrary evidence that there was not actual notice, but um, to, to just rest on the fact that they believe that they're in first position. And, and it, there's no evidence to, to that effect either. There's really no evidence what was involved in the phone call and how much they did know. They are conceding that they had notice of the execution sale. Well, I'm not sure your your friend on the other side would, would say he's conceded, but to uh, Justice Dietz's point, there is no finding of fact about what we're talking about. Is that is that correct? Um, no finding of fact from the trial court? Is, right. is that what you mean? Yes. yes, Your Honor, there's no findings of fact here. Trial court granted summary judgment. Um, but just, just on that point, my understanding is that the um, owner's affidavit that was executed at the time of the refinancing, that, that is what they're relying on to say we, we actually had um, sworn oath that we would be the first lien holder. Absolutely, Your Honor. That's um, what I wanted to have an opportunity to talk about, so thank you for the question. Um, that is correct. Midfirst is arguing that this owner's affidavit essentially serves as the excusable neglect that they must establish under peak. Um, so Midfirst is arguing that that signature on the owner's affidavit serves as their excusable neglect. Um, I'd like to draw the court's attention to that document. It's um, document exhibit 65 in the Rule 9D. Um, these owner's affidavits are actually much more for what we think of as invisible chapter 44 liens. That's chapter 44A. These are mechanics laborers and material men's liens. Um, this is when someone has done work on a property and they have um, 120 days to perfect the lien and the title insurers have no way to check for those liens. They're, they just don't appear. Um, there's a key difference between a material men's lien and a lien, judgment lien that appeared of record and Midfirst could have found. Um, in addition to that being essentially for a material men's lien, it's boilerplate, it's small print, and everyone knows that they sign a lot of documents at closing. There is no evidence that Ms. Brown had any fraudulent intent in signing the owner's affidavit. Um, there's really no evidence that she knew anything about what that meant. And that is the only thing that Midfirst can point to as potential fraud in this case is the owner's affidavit. And there's no evidence that it was an intentional misrepresentation. Again, it was small print, boilerplate, in a stack of closing documents. 
to grant relief in this case on the base of, basis of fraud, the fraud really should relate to Midfirst's ability to discover the lien, um, and there, it cannot show that. There was no fraud or fraud or collusion in the sheriff's sale itself. There was no allegation that there was fraud in the notice provided. But when we're looking at equity, instead of trying to look in isolation and try to create some test that says, okay, if there's this thing, you don't get equitable subrogation. If there's this thing, you do. I mean, isn't the point of equity that we look at all the circumstances and ultimately balance them all together to do perfect justice, to prevent the injustice? And it seems to me here that there's just too many fact questions to really know to do, engage in that balancing. Um, because I understand you say there's certainly no fraud, there was certainly no collusion, but we just heard your friend say the opposite, that it's essentially undisputed that there was. And so um, it seems to me like that's the scenario where we would need a fact finder to tell us what really happened. Um, yes, Your Honor, there's so much general language that has been quoted from the Barber case and Wallace B. Benner that um, we can achieve this perfect justice, that um, it's essential, but it's our position that even equitable remedies have limits, that this notion of perfect justice has limits, and the limits to equitable remedies are the guardrails that provide some sort of um, limitation on that. And here, it's our position that the guardrails are excusable neglect, that Midfirst is a sophisticated lender, that they have, they've, you know, North Carolina's been pure race for 150 years, um, that they operate in this area, that they know they have to check title, and that um, the equitable remedy needs to have some sort of limit. It's just like latches or waiver or estoppel. You can't just go in and, and plead those as affirmative defenses, and then the court says, okay, it, you know, it was too long um, that you waited. And so we have to have some elements and some way to put guardrails around these equitable remedies. And it's our position that that is excusable neglect. Um, equitable remedies are used sparingly, and it's our position this is not the right case. Um, in addition, Midfirst could have sued for fraud or unjust enrichment or sued Brown on the note, and it did not do so. Instead, it seeks this extraordinary remedy, which is reforming the title. And it's our position that even equity um, should not permit them to do that. Um, in addition... If we think that um, the evidence in the record could support a fact-finder determination that, that Ms. Brown essentially engaged in fraud, would that change the analysis? Or are you saying that um, Midfirst was negligent, essentially, and so therefore it doesn't matter what Ms. Brown rep represented? Your Honor, it's the latter. Um, it's our position that, that there is a bright line rule. It was established in Pete. Um, this court can obviously clarify that and provide guidance to the lower courts, but um, that if the lender does not discover a publicly recorded loan, that that is the minority approach and that um, there should not be an equitable remedy in that situation. If um, Doesn't your position sort of entail the view that uh, Midfirst is not entitled to rely on any representation made by Ms. Brown. That's correct, Your Honor, that they are a sophisticated lender, something appears of record, and they have the duty to check the record. The only fraud that we would concede that would undo that is, again, as I mentioned, which would be fraud in pre preventing Midfirst from discovering um, the publicly recorded lien or fraud or collusion with the sheriff, essentially, and not providing fair notice not conducting a properly conducted execution sale. But we do believe that is a, a clear line and it should be um, a line that is a matter of law. Now, if there are um, other cases where there's closing attorney error, like we've distinguished in Wood and Withers and Enray Project Homestead, which are situations where it was a closing attorney and, 
I'm sorry, a closing attorney error and not an error of a title insurance company in failing to discover a publicly recorded lien, that those would be distinguishable because the lender expected to receive first position and it was only as a result um, of the closing attorney error that they were not given the first position lien that they bargained for. It wasn't a failure on their part to discover something that was publicly recorded, which is essentially the minority approach. And we, we believe that North Carolina already follows the minority approach and that this court should affirm that North Carolina follows the minority approach. Also, I want to make sure I understand, um, are, are you suggesting that a sophisticated lender can never take advantage of equitable subrogation? Um, no, Your Honor. If there was a different situation where the borrower had precluded the lender from discovering something in the public record or there's not that type of issue, there was something unrelated to constructive notice, they could take advantage of it. But yes, we are taking the position that that is a hard line, a bright line rule that causes occasional hardship um, but leads to certainty in title. Um, by affirming the Court of Appeals decision, this court will give effect to the legislative intent of both the execution sales statute and the Connor Act. Furthermore, by confirming that North Carolina follows the minority approach to equitable subrogation, this court will provide certainty in real property transactions and security and stability in title determinations in this state. Therefore, we respectfully request that this court affirm the Court of Appeals, confirm that North Carolina follows the minority approach to equitable subrogation, and remand to the trial court for entry of summary judgment in Ms. Anderson and Ms. Brown's favor. If the court has no further questions, then I'll close. Thank you very much. Rebuttal. Your Honor, it's Ryan Hoffman. I'll be handling the rebuttal. I just want to make, I only have, uh, according to this clock, about three minutes and five seconds. So I'm just going to make a couple of quick points. Um, we're not arguing the execution sale should be set aside. That was something argued in the Court of Appeals uh, based on the language of the sheriff's deed. We did not, that's not included in our petition. We are not making that argument today. So their argument that we will cause this cascade of effects where all of these sheriff's deeds have to be set aside, that's not what we're trying to do today. Today we're here purely about equitable subrogation. Um, now, <clears throat> my friend did say that we haven't set forth what rule we would adopt. And so I would like to tell you what, will, what rule we would propose that the court would adopt. We would propose that the court be entitled to look at the equities. If this court imposes a bright line rule and states that if there is any inadvertence in a title search, equitable subrogation is unavailable, that will essentially kill the doctrine of equitable subrogation. I've pled equitable subrogation dozens of times. I have not seen a situation where equitable subrogation would benefit anyone but for scenarios where something is missed through inadvertence. There are millions of title searches every year in the state of North Carolina, there are going to be some errors. And I think Justice Berger hit this point that establishing that bright line rule, well then no lender would ever be entitled to the doctrine. I, I don't know how a borrower would ever preclude anybody from searching the public records. I don't, I don't think that's a thing in reality. But what we're doing harms no one. In the event that there is somebody who says, hey, my interest, I bought out of this judgment sale, <clears throat> excuse me, and I had no knowledge of anything, any of this. Well, what they would do in that scenario is they would assert a defense of being a bona fide purchaser for value without notice. If this judgment execution sale had had a buyer and that buyer was some innocent third party, this lawsuit wouldn't have even been filed. So what I'm asking the court, what we're asking the court to do is to say that the court can look at the equities and the mere inadvertence in a title search of missing a judgment or a deed of trust, in this case a judgment under a very common name, Betty Brown, does not preclude invoking the doctrine of equitable subrogation. Uh, but sir, isn't it true there's no finding that this was inadvertent? There's, there's no finding because this is at sub, the summary, uh, summary judgment stage. 
And so where does that leave us to wonder whether this was inadvertent or if it was just a choice because of the reliance on a lien waiver, which we don't have time to argue about, but at least your friends on the other side say is mostly construed as a mechanics lien waiver. Yes, I, I think it would be it could be easily implied that this was inadvertence. Title insurance or title searches are performed with the closing of every loan transaction in the state of North Carolina. So to miss it is an inadvertence. There's no way around that. And very quickly with my seven seconds, I would say we are very much a pure race state, but with several exceptions. 44A35 mechanics lien statute is an exception, and equitable subrogation is an exception. Thank, thank, thank you, you very much for your time. Thank you.